Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody, on this great, wonderful, sunny Thursday morning. This is Vernon Oaks coming to you to talk about cooperatives, to give you information that you could use to control your life, control your destiny, do the kinds of things that you want to do in life. Now, if you're interested in money, uh, which everybody I know is, this morning we have Ed Whitfield from the Fund for Democratic Communities to talk about raising money and how you can go about getting money. Good morning, Ed. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Oh, let's start off by talking about the Fund for Democratic Communities. What What is that about? We are a small foundation that got started in 2007. Our mission is related to helping to facilitate kind of authentic democratic practice in other social justice organizations as well as directly in communities. And we are particularly involved now in a lot of work around economic justice work to build what we talk about as economic democracy. We're interested in democratizing wealth, finding ways that the enormous riches that have been accumulated as a result of the uh, economic practice over the last many hundreds of years is in some ways made available to people to solve problems inside their own communities and uh, meet human needs and elevate the quality of life. So right now we're involved in a lot of work, particularly in supporting people doing uh, cooperative economic development. We have projects that are here locally. We're located in Greensboro, North Carolina. We have local projects in Greensboro, North Carolina. We have regional projects that we're working on across the South. And um, we're involved in some really exciting work toward putting together something we're calling the uh, Reparation Loan Fund that will be a way of making available loan money to qualifying projects that are sustainable businesses that are democratically owned and democratically governed. Okay, let's, let's can we get you to stop a minute because you've just said two mouthfuls, and I want to see if we can break it down a little bit so that both I can understand what you're doing and, and folks that are listening out there. Okay. Um, it's exciting work to me, but you say you're a small Foundation. Foundation. Right. And so you give grants? We make some grants available through uh, mainly through a matching grant program. Most of our grants go out to people who we will match some of the money that they have done uh, through grassroots fundraising. We'll match that one-to-one up to a limit. Again, we're a small foundation, so nobody's going to get their entire operating budget that way. But we can certainly help with some um, smaller organizations that exist through our matching grant program. And we also do a lot of direct programming work ourselves. Even though we're a foundation, the roots of our foundation were with some activists who don't know how to not be activists. And so <laughs> we, continue, we continue our activist work and um, use the foundation funds to help support that and other people that we're working with directly. Okay, so your foundation, 
for fund for democratic communities. So one side of your equation is you help raise monies and you help to get people to know how they can get money. We're not engaged all that much in raising money. Our foundation is endowed with some money, so we don't do any fundraising for the foundation itself. I'm uh, thinking that you'll you help your people out there, other organizations, you help them to raise money or show them, give them ideas how to raise money so you can match their grant. Is that? Yeah, we do. We certainly send – there's an organization called um, – that sponsors a conference called um, GIFT. It's a – Grassroots Institute for Fundraising Training. So we have sent people. We have sent people to that. Uh, there are some people in this country who are real experts at grassroots fundraising. So we often send people to that. We've done some workshops on grassroots fundraising ourselves. But again, the main work we do is to help people form businesses. And our main work with that isn't the fundraising side of it as much as it is the uh, the kind of business conceptualization of it and the some of the technical assistance connected with actually starting and maintaining a sustainable business. Okay, so I I was under the impression you have people to get money. No, not mainly. I'm not sure where. <laughs> I don't know, but maybe because I like money, and I'm going. Let me let me talk to this man about you know how what? we can that's get money. That's interesting because <laughs> when you say you like money, I actually know very few people who actually like money. Most people I know like the things that money can buy. That's the reason for liking money. That's the well, it, it would be a reason. But the liking of money has led to an economy in this country where people try to get investments um, that will maximize the returns so they have more money. And what that has missed out on is, is a lot of things that are connected with meeting human needs. Because sometimes to do the one, you are actually implicated in things that are different from doing the other. I'll give you an example. Grocery store. One of the reasons we have food deserts in this country. You know, what, what's, a, what's a food desert first, Ed? Sure. Food Desert is a, is a community where people do not have reasonable access to, to a variety of healthy foods. For instance, there's a neighborhood here in Greensboro where uh, you'd have to go close to two miles to get to a grocery store where you might buy an onion or a tomato or some fresh greens or even some canned soup. What's uh, close by this neighborhood are a lot of convenience stores where it's easy to get cigarettes, tobacco, potato chips, and uh, sugary sodas. What's hard to get to is, you know, some healthy variety of vegetables. We call that a food desert. And those convenience um, stores are normally more costly? The convenience stores are typically much more costly, and they might have a few food items. They may have milk in there for 5 or $6 a gallon when you might be able to buy the same milk in a grocery store for three ninety nine a gallon. So, yeah, the convenience stores are expensive, and they don't have typically a good variety of food in them. Okay. Um, the reason why... These communities of food deserts, and often these communities used to have grocery stores in them, is because somebody who liked money <laughs> wanted to make sure that they put their investment, which might have been in a grocery store, instead into something that could make them more money. So they either consolidated their grocery stores or they got out of groceries altogether and went into electronics and invested in the Pacific Rim or maybe it was Silicon Valley, I don't know. But they took their investment out of that community. What we're helping people do is to rather than thinking about how you maximize return on your money, we're helping people to figure out how you maximize the benefit to community. What that community needs is healthy food. And healthy food can be supplied there in a sustainable way. It's not going to require any ongoing subsidy. It's not going to require people finding grants for it because you could run a sustainable, profitable grocery store there. 
What you couldn't do was run a profitable grocery store there that made the highest amount of money. It would have made enough money to be there and pay decent wages uh, and supply people with healthy food, but it would not have made the highest amount of money you could get on the investment, and therefore the investment went somewhere else. So that's why I'm making this distinction between liking money on the one hand and wanting the things that money can buy, which in this case would be healthy food. So we're helping a community build a grocery store in a neighborhood like the one I described that's going to be able to pay above the typical wages in the area, and it's going to have a variety of healthy food at prices that are comparable or lower than the uh, than other food stores because it's not based on how it is that you could make the most money. If you base it on how to make the most money, you would cut into the wages, you would cut into the quality of the food in order to maximize profits. And rather than doing that, we say that the real community benefit here is to have high-quality foods available to people at good prices and provide good jobs. And that's what the effort of the story is. You know, Ed, I, I really... Small distinction I'm making. <laughs> no, that's a huge distinction you're making. And I'm glad you're making it early on in this, in this program because I... I, I do like money, and most people like money. And unfortunately, the, the the issue about capitalism, it gets into this thing called greed and maximum return on investment. And you don't know me very well, but I got an MBA. And in getting that MBA, the, it seemed like all of the decisions were based on how do you maximize shareholder return? Sure. Uh, and not all of the other things that you're talking about. How do you make sure that you've got fair wages for your employees and you're taking care of them? And how do you get the best product to your customers? Uh, how do you uh, supply food to a, to a, to a, a community? Um, they may have taken their store and moved it across town where, where there was growth and people had more money and so forth. And they could make a higher return across town and not in that particular neighborhood. So you, that distinction is huge, and I'm glad you brought it up so early, and also the distinction between what your organization does in helping people create businesses that benefit all of these other, have all of these other goals besides just making money. Now, money's important. You can't have yeah, it a, has to be a sustainable business, or, yeah. or you're out of business, or you're yeah. not doing anything after a while. Yeah. And the other thing is the question of democratic ownership and democratic control. One of the things that typical businesses do uh, businesses that aren't, are not cooperative businesses, for instance, one of the things they, they do is have a pretty hierarchical structure, pretty top-down. The chief owners or the people who have the most money in it have the most say about exactly what's going to happen, and they will get the most benefit out of it. The idea of, uh, of cooperative economic structures is that they're democratically owned, which means that you have a people who are equal in ownership as such, and equal in level of control, one person, one vote. And as a result of that, the community gets to decide, the, the people in the community, there may be, there likely will be, by the time the store opens, about a 1,000 members. So those are the people who are going to elect a board of directors. That board of directors is going to hire a professional manager to make sure that the store is managed properly. So it might get one of your buddies out of business school because it needs somebody who knows how to run a business. Mm -hmm. But just like any other business where the manager is going to be beholden to the own owner's the owners of these are community people, and so now the manager is trying to satisfy those owners who, again, are not trying to maximize the profit. They're trying to maximize community benefit, and that can be defined much more broadly. Maximize community benefit. Right. Let me give a definition of a co-op. Sure. Co-ops are any business you can think of can be a cooperative, and, and I get that there's two major. There's probably 100 or 1,000 different forms of cooperatives 
But the two major co-ops are if it's owned by the employees, it's called a worker cooperative. And if it's owned by the folks that use the products or services of the business, it's called a consumer cooperative. And a grocery store that when you say a thousand members own it, that the the people that use the grocery store own the business. And that's called a consumer cooperative. Housing co-ops, credit unions are other forms of consumer cooperatives. And then they hire, they vote, this democratic control. They vote for the board of directors, and the board of directors then have the fiscal responsibility. They have the responsibility of the of the of the business making sure it works. Now we're going to come back and talk more about co-ops and democratic control and ownership and all of those different kinds of things. But we have to take a break right now. Ed is bringing up some great uh, information from Greensboro, North Carolina. Ed Whitfield for Fund for Democratic Communities, and so we'll be right back with Ed to talk more about this and. We'd appreciate it if you stay with us. News updates on the web at WOLDCnews.com. Information is power. That's WOL's motto and The National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program on cooperatives. So to give you the information that you might need to start your own cooperative, to start your own business, a group of people perhaps come together and and decide what their community might need uh, and then create some business to satisfy that need. We had a gentleman on by the name of Papa Sin from Senegal that said that uh, cooperatives are developed to solve some community need. And if there's no community need, then there's no need for a cooperative. And Mr. Ed Whitfield is, is on is our guest today, and he was just talking about a food desert uh, where there's no there was a neighborhood that does not have good quality foods for a reasonable price. And uh, his organization, Fund for Democratic Communities, helped folks to create these uh, businesses to solve these community needs. Ed, we were talking about democratic wealth and. Uh, Democratic ownership and control. And at some point in this section, I want to talk about the principles of cooperatives, which handles that. But do you have any other um, examples of businesses that you're helping to get started now? Um, yeah, we're working with some people in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I'm working with an outfit there called Cooperation Jackson that came into existence um, shortly or well, during the uh, the time when Chokwe Lumumba had been elected mayor there. Chuck was a very progressive African-American lawyer who um, had been on the city council for a term and then ran for mayor, Jackson. Uh, Jackson is one of these cities in the South. It's got 80% black population and general white flight, both of businesses uh, and and residents uh, that led to the kind of concentration of the black community. Most of the time when that happens, you also have capital flight and a lot of infrastructure and other problems remaining based on the reduced tax base. Well, one of the things that Chokwe was determined to do was without engaging in a process of gentrification, make sure that there was business development there along the lines that would help the majority of the residents and not just enrich a few developers and and, uh, individual entrepreneurs. So he helped people. uh, He and a grassroots organization there called the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement ended up putting together something that is now Cooperation Jackson. And they're looking forward in the next several years 
to building a series of cooperatives uh, and a co-op incubator to help even more of them grow. And they're looking at issues of housing, um, food security, um, recycling, um, and other kind of potential businesses. So I'm doing some work with them and helping them, again, think through uh, some of the business planning side of, of that work so that they can, again, build stable and sustainable businesses uh, along these ideas. Was that the movie, uh, The Help? Was that in Jackson, Mississippi? You know, I haven't seen that movie yet. Okay. So it might have I I really don't know. I think I've seen it a couple of times. It's a really great movie. Uh, But I think it was staged in Jackson. Um, At least that name came up. I I visit Jackson a couple of times. Um, We were going to try to do something with Tougaloo College. Oh, yeah. So this is uh, Cooperative Jackson. What's the name of that mayor? Chokwe Lumumba. He passed away last February. Okay. Uh, he had been in office seven months. He he passed away, but the folks he's been working with are still determined to carry that work forward and um, are still working on it. Jackson, Mississippi, 80% black population. So right. you had whites to leave. They take their money with them. And so then you have um, issues within the community. I assume there were all kinds of issues, including problems with uh, crime. Um, yeah, there's some problems with crime. You know, the crime thing always gets me because there's a lot of petty crime that comes as a result of poverty. Um, there's a lot of grand crime that created the nation. <laughs> so when I think about crime, I think about the big ones. Like, stealing a whole country is really, really criminal. Um, but yeah, there's some petty crime that goes on. Poor people will sometimes engage in petty crime. The gigantic kind of crime, though, is happening at higher levels within the uh, within the state government, and the uh, the massive control over large swaths of land there that are kept away from the people that need to be on that land so they can work it and 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 have a subsistence. Um, the kind of low wages that are paid. I mean, there's a lot of criminal stuff that's going on. That that some of it, some of the criminal stuff that's going on is not even illegal <laughs> because some of the people doing it make the laws. So you know. Well, you just hit on a whole another subject of conversation. Um, I had the pleasure of being at the White House with at 2012. Uh, the United Nations had declared 2012 as the year of the cooperative, and we had a White House briefing. And I was attempting to make the point of it, it looks like to me, and this has been uh, as I've studied now, is this hypothesis is turning out to be true that you have people. Um, rich people particularly that will pay for politicians. Sure. Kosh Brothers is a good example, and then they give right. a lot, a lot, a lot of money, they get politicians in, and then those politicians are help put in programs, laws, to so that they get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. Right. Uh, when you look at and I came about this by looking at HUD programs. I do property management as my full-time job. Okay. So I look at the HUD programs, and if you look at affordable housing that w- that they put money in for co-ops, uh, affordable co-ops, l- low equity co-ops or no equity co-ops, you look at those housing and compared to apartment buildings and it look the the affordable housing co-ops perform much better in any category you can think of. Uh, less foreclosures, lower rents, better quality of life, uh, less maintenance, uh, 
okay, everything, less crime. That's what I even brought the crime up was thinking about this research. And it's all because of this democratic control and ownership. And people take pride in, particularly once they know that they are owners and not tenants, that there is some transition, some mental transition that has to happen. Absolutely. You're absolutely right about that. Yes. So once they get that, then, so I I get, I I go ask the question of, well, why, because it is so much better product, why doesn't the government put their money there? Let, Let me guess. Because they put all of their money in apartment buildings now. There's a little money going into co-op, except for 202 for seniors. Yeah. But for everyday, uh, so when you talk about housing in Jackson, it would be great if we could get some of the federal dollars to put in housing, again, for all of the right reasons. And I'll give you another quote here. Um, this lady by the name of Dame Pauline Green, who's the president of International uh, uh, Cooperative Alliance, said, uh-huh. On the program, she said, "Co-ops brings people out of poverty with dignity." Right, and I like that. I like that word a lot because most of the programs that we have from the federal government, they just give people enough money to survive, right. and they also have to spend that money. And the people that are taking in that money, having the businesses, they're the ones that make money off of that, as opposed to giving them. A, a co-op, whether it's a worker co-op or a consumer co-op like housing, so that they can build wealth. And I heard you say that's a part of what you're trying to do to your mission, Absolutely. your goal. One of the things we're concerned with is what we talk about is community wealth building. We want to help build wealth in a way that benefits the community and, again, can be democratically structured for ongoing benefit. Let me give you an example. Go. If this grocery store in Greensboro makes a $40,000 profit, and it's got a thousand members. You got several options, and the members will get to decide. They can take that forty thousand dollars and divide it up as patronage dividends, which is perfectly legal and very reasonable under the way cooperatives are structured. And everybody gets a check for forty bucks. Or they can take that forty thousand dollars and leave it together and decide that they're going to buy two hundred band uniforms at two hundred dollars a piece for a local band, high school band, or something. Now, I think that the community impact of a thousand people getting a check for 40 bucks, which will afford them to go get one good meal, one fancy meal, that's all you get out of that, or buy the whole band uniforms that are going to last for several years for a couple of hundred young people and make them a whole lot more proud about being in school every day. I think that, you know, those have different kind of impacts. And so this whole question of what, what does it mean when we de- democratically start thinking about the wealth in our community? and how we can use it in the community to maximize benefit. That, that, that I think, is a really important thrust of some of that mental shift that you're talking about um, in, you know, when you become an owner. And now, oh, I get the chance to decide what happens to the profit in my business. Now, you could have ever so benevolent a developer come in and build that store. And when that $40,000 profit comes to him, he knows it's his money. I mean, that's end, end of discussion. And the, he'll either buy a... a Buy another room in a beach house because forty thousand dollars won't buy you a whole beach house anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but he could he could add a room onto his beach house, or he can take it and buy part of a fancy car because forty thousand won't even buy you a fancy car anymore. <laughs> but uh, but he could take it. Yeah. It is when it's the communities. Then I think we start talking about community benefit and that whole sense of democratic control. It's like you know you know we got a store. It's still paying good wages. It, it, We've got to take another break, and we're going to come back on this subject of uh, building wealth for the community. We'll be right back. Sure. 
News updates on the web at WOLDCnews.com. Welcome back this morning, and it's sunny uh, here. Last Thursday, we had six inches of snow. Today, it's all gone. Sun's out, and it looks great. I think we're supposed to have 60 degrees today. Interesting how the weather changed, and that's what I would hopefully like to see us change in America. We have a capitalistic society where most people make uh, uh, the the capital versus labor, Uh, and the, the one percenters, I've heard a quote that they have made as much income in the last 10 years, at least from 97 to 2007, they made six, they took 60% of the income made by the U S. So that only leaves 40% of the total income in the U S for the 99% is us, uh, the people here. So how do we change this dynamic? And one of the ways of changing that dynamic is what Ed Whitfield is talking to us about who is from the Fund for Democratic Communities, of how do you inc- change the wealth where you have community wealth. And, Ed, that's what we were talking about uh, here before we took break, was how do you get the maximum benefits uh, to the to the community. Um, and you were you gave us the idea about the, the uh, grocery store and um, the, co-op, the cooperative Jackson which is fascinating. I like to get down there. I get some of those people on the program too. What what else are you doing or how can, are you only in Greensboro or do you make grants to folks in the Washington DC area? Or do you have a specific area that you make grants? We're focused on the South. We're mainly focused on like um, 14 States. We're doing a lot of our work through something we call the Southern grassroots economies project, which uh, focuses on, Virginia, North Carolina, West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, and Oklahoma. Um, mm-hmm. So we typically don't do um, much of anything in, in the um, Washington, D.C., or Baltimore, East or, yeah, in that surrounding area. Um, the Southern Grassroots Economies Project, one of the kind of exciting things, again, we're working on is this thing we're calling the reparations loan fund. But in addition to that, we also have a uh, normally annual gathering that we have been calling Co-op Econ uh, for Cooperative Economics. And uh, the last one was held in um, in October of 2014 in Epps, Alabama at the um, Federation of Southern Cooperatives Rural Training Center. Um, we're looking to have another one in 2016 this year, 2015, we're having some smaller regional gatherings. We're going to have a couple of regional gatherings in North Carolina. Well, one in North Carolina, another one we call the Southern Appalachian Regional Gathering that's going to be in kind of western, I'm sorry, eastern Tennessee and western North Carolina. And we're trying to put together a gathering down in Florida with some contacts that we're working on there. But uh, we, it's not as far, as far along. Hello? Consulting okay. with people, we're consulting with people um, a lot about kind of cooperative things. Uh, Marnie Thompson, who's the other co-founder uh, of F4DC, and she's also a co-managing director. She and I were in Bloomington, Indiana, two weeks ago at a conference of people talking about how it is that we can build more food co-ops in low-income communities. 
know, a lot of people think about co-op grocery stores as being very expensive places that sell natural, local, organic foods um, and, you know, attract the more affluent crowds. And we're developing a model for how you build those in communities that are mixed-income, low-income communities in some of our communities across the South. Um, that's, you know, some of the work we're doing is, again, advocacy around that and uh, and sharing the model that, that we're developing here with other people who are interested in doing the same thing in their community. You know, um, have, have you at all worked with the National Co-op Bank? They had given money to help start grocery stores, and I think they ended up giving that money to one of the larger grocery, uh, uh, co-op grocery organizations. Do you know anything about that? That you might be able. We have some relation with National Co-op Bank. Um, they're working along with uh, North Country Co-op Development Fund for some of the financing for the um, for this project we're doing here in Greensboro. And we have some friends there with the National Co-op Bank that we've been in discussion with about how again this model might extend. There, there were some representatives from that group who were in the meeting I was describing in Bloomington uh, a couple of weeks ago. Well, Chuck Snyder is the president of the National Co-op Bank, and he says uh, that co-ops are nothing but people helping people. And this is sound like exactly what you are doing is your organization is going out and meeting other people. And I was going to ask you about the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. They've been on the program, uh, Ralph Page and Cordelius. I can't remember his last name right now. Blanding. Blanding, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> nice brother. Yeah, I just talked to him a couple of days ago. He's uh, the new executive director. Ralph has stepped down after about 30 years. I didn't know that. Okay. Ralph did a great job over his tenure there, and um, he's passed it on to Cornelius, who is the, uh, as of March 1st, Cornelius is the new executive director there, and we're looking for some great things to continue from that organization. It's yeah. a lot of the civil, civil rights movement directly. It's, it's a really impressive story. What, um, I've had a gentleman by the name of David Thompson on this program, and he had, he was the first one to introduce me to the civil rights, uh, the influence of cooperatives on the civil rights movement, going back to Frederick Douglass, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, um, and all the way through uh, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, and the F Federation of Southern Co-ops uh, was very much a part of his conversation. And then Jessica, uh, Dr. Jessica Gordon Nimrod uh, has written Nimhard. a Nimhart yeah. has yeah. written a book, and uh, and it's well, a fascinating scary. book about this history that you're talking about. And she said that the biggest, the first two things that she found out was that this history was hidden or forgotten, and how how broad and uh, depth uh, this this history is of cooperatives in the black community. Uh, and and, and yeah. that's that's also amazing to me of who's writing the history books and what they put in them and what they take out of them. But yeah, there's a lot that gets left out. Um, I, I'm reading a couple of fascinating pieces of history that go back into the 19th century and before. Um, on um, there's a book, "The Half Has Never Been Told," um, by a historian named Edward Baptist that talks about kind of the development of the South and its relation to the country. And it is an altogether different history than what I got in high school. Uh, <laughs> it's, an, it's an amazing story of the the role that slavery played in the early development of capitalism in this country. And a lot of people, I don't think, have any real appreciation for the central role that it played in that early accumulation of what is now the basis of wealth 
throughout this nation, um, which is why the issue of reparations is such a real and practical issue. The communities that are doing badly now are exactly the same communities that help to generate the wealth for the communities that are doing well. And the communities that are doing badly are doing badly because they don't have access to the wealth that they created. And, and that's what, again, when we talk about democratizing wealth, at some level we have to look back and figure out how to undo some of that damage. And that, that repair, that is reparations to me. Uh, it's, it's about how we're going to develop communities, again, into being vibrant, sustainable places where people can get together and work hard to, to satisfy their own needs. And in order to do that in a country that's dominated by capital, you have to have access to that wealth, the access to that capital that has been created. And that's a real challenge. Well, the reason I like cooperatives is that this is the only form of business that I can see where the everyday person can create wealth. I, I've never believed either as a kid that, that white folks, the folks at the time that had money, would give me or my family members 40 acres and a mule. I just, I just never bought that. Well, uh, I think you were right. So, so, so the question is, how do we make it ourselves? And this cooperative model is a way that I see that we can make it if, if we can get enough people to both want to, well, let me go back a minute. There was a lady on the first month that we were, that we were on the program about a year and a half ago in October. She's from the Greenbelt Cooperative. The white lady, uh, Leela Mack said that I asked why we don't have more co-ops for all of the positive reasons that you, you and I talk about. And she said, because it's hard work. And, and, I, and, I, and I didn't expect that. I expected because we don't have the laws, because capitalism is, is the main focus and people that have money want to make more money for whatever reason. I don't quite get yet. Um, but they just want to get more and more and more and more, and they don't want to share, and they don't want to see money. other people. Huh? It's because they like money. Yeah. <laughs> but see, here, I, I wanted to go back to that. But it is hard work. So once we can get people to understand that, that if they own it and if they work hard, then they can create the wealth for themselves through this co-op model. But yeah. I wanted to go back to that like wealth because there was a transformation in my being. I still like money. The, the thing, though, that, that I have come to know is that God has blessed me in more ways than I can ever even say but definitely much more than I could have thought about when I was nine or 10 years old and coming up on a hill in Bluefield, West Virginia. Uh, so, but the thing that he's blessed me is so I can be a blessing to others. And so liking money, still I like it, but it's for a whole different reason now. I when I went to Stanford, when I started the property management business, it was how could I get more money for me, me, my family. Now the question in, in this evolution is how the more I get, how can I, then pass it on and be a blessing, but but not just money, but it's also knowledge, and that's what we're we're trying to do right now is get people knowledge and get to maybe the inquiry so that they they want to know more and get involved so that they can help create money for themselves. So it's a blessing, and and I've also changed around I don't know about thirty years ago. Instead of giving ten percent of what I earn, I want to get to the place where I'm giving ninety percent of what I earn. Somebody called that reverse tithing. Uh, okay. I'm not there yet. Cause I, I haven't, I'm not making enough or I don't, I haven't got to a point where I'm living off a lot, lot, lot less more than I'm, I'm making, but I have made, made that transfer. It's much more than 10%, but I'm wanting to get to 90%. So I still like money and I want to, and I, I still want to make more money, but it's for a whole different reason. Now, the reasons that you're talking about. I hear you. Okay. Commendable. 
what what you're doing is a tremendously commendable, and you have a nice way of talking about it. But I want to go back to you mentioned economic justice earlier. Yes. What what is that? You know, typically a lot of people think about economic justice from the standpoint of redistribution. They want to figure out a way to redistribute things, and certainly the unfair system of of distribution is is a problem. I like to think about economic justice mainly from the standpoint of something I call productive justice. I want to create opportunities for people to be fully productive because I think that is the real humanizing thing. To give people opportunities to do things for themselves is more important to me than just giving folks stuff because part of what people need is the dignity that comes out of doing things for themselves. And everybody would be more capable of doing things for themselves, again, if they had access to community wealth as one of the bases for doing it. So part of community wealth issue is the fact that we can create it. But there's also some that's already here that exist in local governments, that exist in um, financial institutions, that we need to figure out how to have more democratic access to in order to create these opportunities for people to be productive. And then once people are able to be productive, they can go on producing huge amounts of wealth if the wealth is not extracted, if the wealth is not taken away from them. Somebody did a study uh, a few years ago of a typical McDonald's franchise and found out that 70% of the wealth created by the labor of folk who work at that store leaves the community. Mm-hmm. And so if the, if the wealth is constantly being sucked out of the community, we can create job after job after job. And still we're not, you know, the jobs are basically the money that you need to, to live and eat on and stuff. What's happening to the profit? That, that, that is the issue. And that's where cooperatives, again, come in, because the, profit, the profits are owned by the owners. And we're talking about building structures where the profits stay in the community. That's all the difference in the world. If anybody out there would like to make a comment or a question to Ed or myself, you can call in at one 800 Four five zero seven eight seven six one eight hundred four five zero seven eight seven six on a whole range of topics that we we're talking about this morning around cooperatives, and we'll be right back. We're going to take another another break, and when we come back, I do want to start off by talking about the principles of co-ops, which we've already mentioned a lot of them uh, in this conversation so far. And Ed, we only had one more segment. <laughs> it goes the hour goes by very fast, but we'll be right back. News updates on the web at WOLDCnews.com. Information is power. And particularly if you take that information and do something with it, if you put some action to that information, then that's where you get the power from. National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program to give you information about cooperatives so that you can take this information and put it to use. Go find a, a grocery co-op to buy your your uh, food stock from or start one in your community or go to find a credit union or a housing co-op. Uh, NCB's mission is to help cooperatives grow by supporting and being an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members placing special emphasis on serving the needs of communities that are economically challenged. And the economically challenged communities could be Jackson, Mississippi, or different parts of Washington, D.C., or anywhere in the U.S. 
And so NCB has a tremendous mission to do. We want to talk about the principles, but before we do that, Ed, we have Brenda on the line. Brenda, what's your question or comment? Uh, yes, I um, caught really tuned in to where I didn't get all the information, but I am trying to take notes, and I am very much interested in um, the North Carolina, you know, um, aspect of, of what you were talking about. And if you can, please uh, leave your information. Uh, I would really, or maybe I can call and leave my number because I really need to speak to someone that I feel that I can trust or relate to because a lot of the issues with co-ops, people, I mean, I'm, I'm a nurse myself. I'm an RN and I know where I got my um, qualities for from my great grandmother who they had a business, of course, in a way she sold candies, but she would give away more than she Mm-hmm. And I said, well, how do you do it? And I think I took after her a lot in that, you know, I am an RN and I've worked in just about every area. And I just, me and the money thing is just not a, a thing, though I have learned to live within my means. People say I could teach a course about finances because my mother set me down when I was like eight and I knew how to balance a checkbook. So though I, uh, you know, I'm living off a, a very fixed income due to injuries related to nursing and all that, I've learned how to manage. And um, so my thing is, is because of the way I am, you know, finding these co-ops, I am a naturalist. I'm a vegan, non-smoker, non-drinker. It is very difficult to find people that really believe in health and living it so that um, I'm very funny about a lot of things. But I'm just wondering, you know, how can someone that doesn't know about what you're talking about, you know, learn about it? Brenda, let me ask Ed now. I was going to ask him at the end of the program. But, Ed, can you give the contact information for your organization, funds for yeah, our, democratic our communities? Website, our website is f4dc.org.org. That's the letter okay. F. Wait a minute. Let, hold on. Let me. Okay, okay. F. Okay. Let me ask you to do this. I was going to ask you to give your number to the gentleman so I could okay, call you back. I can call back, right, because I really need to, I mean, I'm okay. just curious about this, and I can be of help, just no like worries. I may need certain help in certain areas, but I have certain things that I know that I can help. All right, you know? well, let's let's see okay. how we can help each other. So just call back that number and just leave my name and number, right? Okay. That'll okay, work. all right. Thank you so much. It's interesting, the largest worker cooperative in the United States is a healthcare cooperative in Bronx, New York, called uh, Cooperative Home Healthcare. Got about 2,000 members. They do, you know, kind of private healthcare work in a, in a way that is a dignified job, as opposed to the kind of CNA way that some of these private companies have really damaged the dignity of these folks who do this very important healthcare work for uh, for people who need it. I was going to say the whole health field is is prime for co-ops, right. whether it's on the insurance side or people that are given the the health care. So, yeah, the co-ops can play a, a tremendous role. And you said it's the largest. Is that a worker co-op? Yes, it is a worker co-op in Bronx, New York. Cooperative Home Health Care is the name of it. Okay. So let's talk about the principles of cooperatives real quick here. The, the first one, there are seven uh, principles for the modern cooperative, and the first one is voluntary and open membership, and this is one of the reasons I love co-ops. It doesn't make any difference, your race, your creed, your color, your how much money you got. You, It's open there. If, if they're working as a co-op, then the second one is democratic member control. We've already talked about that. I want to come back, Ed, and talk more about what you mean by authentic democracy. I think that's the yeah, word you use. I, I, I like to use the word authentic democracy. 
Okay, we'll come back to that one. Okay, we'll come back. The third one is member economic participation, and normally there is some fee to join a co-op. The the grocery store uh, co-op in Greenbelt, I can't remember if it was $100 or $10 to join, but then you also have the other side of that is that when there is money left over, profit if you will, then the members have, members or through the board of directors, will decide where that money goes, how much it stayed in the business for growth and how much it's given out in terms of dividends. The fourth one is autonomy and independence. The co-op has to be able to have its own control. And sometimes in other countries like Africa, the, the governments would try to get in and have control. But what I've been told is that's not happening as much. Sometimes the organization that gives the money would try to have control, but the the co-op has to have control, ownership and control. The fifth one is one I like a lot, education, training, and information. The sixth right. is cooperation among cooperatives. And the seventh is concern for community. Right. Uh, before we get into your authentic democracy, we have Ron on the phone. Ron? Sure. Yeah, well, good morning, gentlemen. As I normally, I'm listening to the uh, program uh, very attentively. I have uh, myself started a positive change purchasing cooperative. And uh, we are working in the transportation market area, and we will be assisting limousine, taxicab companies with a problem which has been created by legislation, which y'all were talking about, government creating uh, legislation which extracts wealth from the uh, working class. Um, This has been done in the District of Columbia in the taxicab and limousine industry. And one problem that we have is that Commercial leases are not allowed to be used for those limousines and taxicab companies that uh, have to purchase mandated wheelchair-accessible vehicles. And we put together financing, and we're working with manufacturers. And I'd, I'd like to come on your show in the near future and make an announcement about a meeting Ron, that will be. Uh, Ron, Ron let, let me see if I can. Why, why don't we just see if we can schedule you, have you on here one Thursday, so we can we can no talk problem. about your your cooperative. It sounds wonderful for all of the right reasons, and that's if there's a, there a problem, then co-ops are, are formed to solve a community problem. No problem. I will leave my number with your uh, engineer and just give me a call. I'll be more than happy to come on the airways and to discuss this matter because we have a hearing coming up at the D.C. Tax Cap Commission to amend the law to allow leasing companies to operate in the district to be able to assist our companies uh, What's the, what's the date on the hearing? We, we're we waiting now from the hearing from the chair's office right now. We've submitted the petition, and we're waiting for the uh, date to come from the chair uh, from the tax cap commission office. We'll have that very shortly. All right. If you can leave your number with uh, Alonzo, our engineer, who does a great job. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, and I'm enjoying the show as usual. All right. Thank you, sir. Ed. Yes. We're back to this authentic democracy. What's what is that? Yeah, I, I just want to. The reason I like to put authentic in front of democracy before I use it a lot is a lot of people are so used to democratic forms, they miss out on democratic substance. So some people think of democracy as voting, and you know, voting can be democratic, but then sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, democracy is about authentic ways in which the voice of the people actually controls the conditions of their life. In other words, if I tell you you can vote, but I tell you the things you can vote between, like you can have either a dark blue or a black car, and you want a red car, and I say, well, you're going to pick either one. It's like, but I don't want either one of those. I want something else. No, 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 no. Your choice is between dark blue and black. 
I told you what you can pick between. Do that mm-hmm. and be democratic. That's not authentic democracy. Authentic democracy isn't just about choosing between alternatives other people give you. It also has to do with creating alternatives yourself. And the last thing I want to say is that often authentic democracy is as much in how people can come together and think together as it is in how people register their opinion. Now, if I can already have an opinion, you can have an opinion. And because we grew up differently, and diff- you were in West Virginia, I was in Arkansas growing up. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the worlds we saw were somewhat different. And we come together with our already set ideas that grew out of our own experiences. For it to be democratic and something that's going to come from the both of us, we have to learn how to think together, not just come in and register the opinion we already had and then get mad when it doesn't go our way. So this thinking together is, again, a piece of authentic democracy that we find it very important to promote in the work that we do. And we've told uh, – there's a, a little formulation for it I call SASH, which means that authentic democracy has the spirit, the art, the science, and the habits of democracy all folded into one. Spirit, art, science, and habits of democracy have to be in place before it's authentic. I thank you for that. I wrote it down. I got it. Uh, We could have, we only have about 30 seconds. So would you give your webpage again? Yeah, our webpage is f4dc.org. The letter F, the number four, the letter D, the letter C, dot org. O-R-G. Yes. We're, we're out of time. I, I could spend another hour with you. I've learned a lot. I appreciate it. We'd love to have you on another time. If you being here, just give us a call. We'd be glad to do it. And I would like for you to – I'd like to get on your list so I can know when these programs are. I would like to see if I can become involved in them too. Thanks okay, a lot, that'd sir. that would be great. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye. News updates on the web at WOLDCnews.com.